Well, it's already been about five years since this happened, but when my middle son Logan was about three years old, I came to understand why assumptions are usually not a good thing to work on. So he was three years old. This was when we lived out in Arizona, and so we had a single-level house just right on the cement slab. They just put the houses down, and you're good to go. Um, back, back about five years ago, when he was three years old, I was walking through his bedroom. Um, and I noticed as I got really close to his bed, there was some moisture in the carpet. And I ran through, okay, what is going on here? And immediately, my mind came to only one logical conclusion about why there was moisture in the carpet. I thought to myself, I assumed to myself, he peed all over it. I don't know why that was a rational thought at the time, but I just assumed that's the only logical conclusion. So I brought three-year-old Logan into that room, and I pointed at the carpet. I said, Logan, did you go potty over here on the carpet? And he looked at me, and he said, no, Daddy. And you know how parents, we kind of look in the eyes of kids just to kind of see what they're really thinking. And I thought I caught a glimmer of some guilt in there, so I pressed him a little further. I said, Logan. Did you pee on the carpet? He's like, no, Daddy. And he, he held firm with it. And so I start to lay it on. I was sure that he had done this. And so I, I, I laid it up. I said, Logan, you need to tell me the truth. I know this carpet is wet. You need to tell me the truth. It's okay. You can just tell me the truth. You need to tell me. Did you pee on this carpet? I basically did everything short of waterboard this kid. Did you do this? And finally, he just looks at me, and without saying a word, he's looking right into my eyes. He just goes, <laughs> nods his head yes. And I'm like, thank you for telling me. Don't ever do that again. It's disgusting. I, I basically shamed him. I said, why would you do that? Don't do that again. Now Daddy has to clean it up. Guilt, guilt, guilt. I'm piling up the guilt. So he, he leaves. He's kind of got his head down. Three-year-old boy. Three-year-old boy. And I start cleaning up the moisture. Right, I get the towels out. I start cleaning it up. I'm like, man, this is a lot of moisture. And I'm working closer to the side of his bed where it meets the wall. And I'm like, wow, this kid really went a lot. <laughs> so much so that I'm like, I better see what's on the other side of this wall. So I went out in the hallway, and there was a closet there where our um, heater and air conditioning blower for the whole house is. And there was like a, a, an inch, less than about half an inch of water on, on the bottom of it. And I'm like... That kid really had to go. <laughs> but then I noticed there was something dripping down. What had happened was there, whenever you run the air conditioner, you know, there's that condensation, the water it takes out of the air, and it, it drains out of the house. But somehow that drain was plugged up, and it was just falling down and pouring into his bedroom. So I'm like, oh, man, I, I totally blew it. Great fathering moment, right? And so I walk, I bring Logan back into his room. I'm like, I know you didn't pee on the floor. I know you didn't. Logan, did you take apart the air conditioner and block the drainage valve? <laughs> this is part 10 of our Jesus series. We're taking a look at the life of Jesus, the last three years of his life from, um, and from the end of Christmas all the way up until Easter. And we've looked at so much already. Just last week, we saw how Jesus entered this final year of his ministry where he stopped being this popular person, and now disciples started to unfollow him. And I just have to get this out right away. What we're going to see today, both by what Jesus does and by what he says, he's going to challenge some assumptions that you might have about greatness. 
You see, assumptions we have in any area of life, they can always set us up for failures, whether it's parenting failure or financial failure or relational failure. But what we're looking at today is this area of life called greatness. And when we make some false assumptions about this area of life, it has the potential to ruin all of the other ones. So what do you assume about greatness? Well, here's what I'm assuming about you. I'm, I'm thinking of the audience, both the people here and the people listening or watching online, and here's kind of three different categories that I'm assuming about you. And if these are incorrect, you can email me afterwards and tell me what, how wrong I am, and that's fine. I can take it. But first of all, as I think about the people in this room, as you think of greatness, some of you are driven to greatness, You're just driven naturally. You have this motivation about you where maybe it's competitiveness or just you want to get ahead. Whatever it is about you, it doesn't matter if the person next to you is your friend, your family, or your foe. You want to be better than them. And this is a drive that you have. And and because of that drive, every moment, every minute of every day, you're just thinking, how can I be greater? How can I be greater? And, And you're driven by that. You're driven by that. I'm not saying this wrong yet. I'm just saying that's the way it is. Some of us just have this drive to greatness. And on the other extreme, some of us are kind of on the other end of this where we are just content to float towards greatness. Uh, we're, we don't, we're not against greatness per se, but we're not going to spend 15 hours a day doing everything we can to be great. If we can float there, perfect. We'll take what we can get. But there's not this strong, tr- strong drive for greatness. And then maybe there's a third category of us out there in here where we've kind of given up on greatness. You got out of high school, you got out of college, you're going to set the world on fire, you got all these plans, how you can use your skills and abilities, you're going to have a million followers on YouTube, whatever it is, you've had all these ideas of greatness, but then you hit a brick wall. And somewhere along the line, you just kind of succumb to this. You surrendered to insignificance for your life. Greatness was once something that you wanted, but now you've just given up on it. And this applies to all areas of life, by the way. We could, we could look at careers. We could look at parenting. We could look at families. We could look at finances. We could look at video. Like some of you just want to be great for, for, for being number one in a video game, right? What, what was that game? Not... not I can't think of it. Anyway, so there's like all these video games. Well, what if we could be number one? Some of us strive for greatness. Some of us are content to float there, and some of us have given up on it. But here's the good news that we're going to dive into today. When Jesus looks at people, whether they're driven, not driven, or given up on driving, Jesus looks at them, and here's what he did. First thing I want you to remember for today, Jesus preached that greatness is within your reach. He said this to people, no matter what level you're at, no matter how high or how low, greatness is within your reach. And there are so many things that go along with this, and I think we bring some false assumptions into greatness. But rather than me spilling all the beans, we're going to look at how Jesus addressed this in his day. Because there was a certain day, actually several days, where Jesus had this unique opportunity to really get into people's hearts and to say, I see you want greatness, but you have some false ideas about what it is and how to get there. And so as he interacts with, with his disciples and as he interacts with us through, through the scriptures, we're going to see what greatness really is 
And we're going to knock down some false assumptions on the way there. So the, the, the text we're going to look at is actually a few different places. The primary one is uh, Luke's, no, Matthew's. Matthew's account of, of what happened in the last couple weeks of Jesus' life. Uh, but we're also going to look at Mark's account and Luke's account. I think I have them all straight. Uh, a few different uh, uh, angles on this very same moment. Because as each one looks in, they give us some unique details. This happens in the last couple weeks of Jesus' life. He's about to enter Jerusalem, and we're going to talk about why that's a big deal in just a minute. But just to put you in the context, this is Mark chapter 10. And now they're finally going into Jerusalem a week, two weeks before Jesus would die. So they were on their way up to Jerusalem, up because it's on a hill, so you always go up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. The disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. They were astonished because Jesus is leading the way to Jerusalem. See, Jerusalem is where you've got all the people who hate Jesus the most. You have the Jewish leaders who view Jesus as this blasphemer who's leading people away from God. So they didn't just want to excommunicate Jesus. They wanted to exterminate him. To get rid of them, to put them to death. And, and, this, and Jerusalem was where they had the most power and authority and influence to do just that. And so why would Jesus go to Jerusalem and why would he lead the way? It's like all his disciples and followers had to keep up with him. His disciples were astonished at what he was doing. And then the followers, so maybe not his immediate disciples, but just people who were following him were actually afraid. What's he going to do there? What's going to happen to him there? And what's going to happen when word gets out that we are with him? So the disciples are perplexed. They're astonished. The followers, they're afraid. And what's cool is Jesus talks to astonished disciples and afraid followers. And he gives them some information that should immediately, immediately give them comfort. Or at least a sense of direction. So Mark 10, he goes on to say this. So again, after they, they're on their way to Jerusalem, he took the 12 aside and he told them what was going to happen to him. Hey, guys, I see that you're astonished and afraid. Come here. Let me just remind you of what I already told you. And here's the cool part. You look at Mark chapter 8. And then you look at Mark chapter 9. And then you look at Mark chapter 10. Mark 10 is the third time Jesus told them what was going to happen in Jerusalem. In fact, Mark puts in a little note. This is the third time that he's told them these things. Or maybe it's Luke. This is the third time that, that he's told them these things. And he's giving them this information up front. And yet, there are some assumptions that the disciples were making even while Jesus gave them this information. Okay, so what did Jesus tell them? Uh, four things. Hey guys, when we go to Jerusalem, I'm going to be betrayed. Betrayed to which they would probably naturally think, well, if you're going to be betrayed and you know about it ahead of time, can you kind of, like, not be betrayed? This is a good thing that you know this. But then he goes on. He says, after I'm betrayed, I'm going to be condemned. They're going to hand me over, and I'm going to be condemned by the, the Jewish leaders, condemned to death. Well, again, that's kind of a good thing you know this, right? Because an innocent man being condemned, shouldn't he do things to to bolster his self-defense. 
Then Jesus goes on, well, after that, I'm going to be mocked. I'm going to be flogged, beaten. Okay, well, we know it's coming. And then finally he says, I'm going to be crucified. And they're, they're sifting through all this information. And what we see as a response is that they had no idea what Jesus was talking about. They were trying to filter this through their minds, trying to make sense of the information they had. But they had no idea. In fact, Luke, as he records this account, he says this. The disciples did not understand any of this. Its meaning was hidden from them, and they did not know what he was talking about. They had some information. Carpet is wet. They had this conclusion. Well, there's a little boy here. And they made some assumptions to help bridge the gap of what this meant for them. Here's, as, as we look at the context, as we look at Mark 8, 9, and 10, and how Jesus reacted, here's what I think they were thinking. They thought, hey, Jesus, if this is a chess game, you know their next 10 moves. This is a good thing. They viewed this as, okay, Jesus, we're going into Jerusalem. This is like the fulfillment of everything. This is the end. This is, this is where we win. And it seems like they assumed that since Jesus was going to Jerusalem and he knew what was going to happen, that Jesus was then going to lure his enemies out of hiding and then squash them somehow. And this entry into Jerusalem was actually like a victory march where Jesus would assume power and control over the Jewish nation. And who would be in second in command? Who would be third in command? And these thoughts started to flood their minds to the point that Jesus called them on it more than once. Hey, guys, what were you arguing about on the road? Well, we're trying to figure out who's going to be second in command, third in command. And Jesus is shaking his head. You don't get it. You don't get it. But they filled this gap with some assumptions about what greatness for Jesus and for them would look like. For them, here's what we know. Greatness was a destination. Greatness was the finish line. And we think of greatness in the exact same way today. Uh, we talk about making it, right? We talk about finally getting there to the point of greatness. We can see greatness on an organizational chart because greatness is the person at the top who commands everyone else and whom everyone else serves. That is greatness. And that's what the disciples wanted. But Jesus, in this, in this narrative, as he interacts with his disciples, as we're about to see, he has a very clear truth for them to know. One that challenges the assumptions all of us bring when we talk about greatness in our lives. And it's number two on your sheets. You see, greatness is not about, I'm sorry, greatness is about a direction. It's about a path. It's about where you are now. It's not something in the future. It's not this location that you're going to end up at. But greatness is within your reach because greatness is not about a location that's to come. It's about a direction for today. He's going to unpack that and unfold that as he interacts with his disciples and us through these next words from Matthew chapter 20. But before we get there too much, I can't even set up this next section. You just have to read it and see how far his disciples had fallen into the trap. That greatness is just something that we can get to eventually in some place. This is what they did. The mother of Zebedee's sons. So this would have been James and John, two of the disciples. Their mommy, their mommy came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down asked a favor of him. 
You look at the other accounts, and it basically says they, they said, do for us whatever we ask of you. Write us a blank check. Now, Jesus, being too wise for this, he says, well, hold on, hold on, hold on. What is it that you want? Now, now you might think this is one of those awkward moments where your mom came with you to the job interview, and you're like, Mom, I don't need you here. But when you look at the other accounts, it was pretty clear that James and John wanted their mom there. Like this was leverage for them to get something that they wanted because they viewed greatness as a destination, not as a direction. And so they had their mom come and ask this question of Jesus, and it went like this. She said, grant that one of these two sons of mine, I don't care which one, just you pick one, you pick the better one. One of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. What was greatness for them? Greatness was a place at the top of the organizational chart. Greatness was a location that they hoped to someday be in. Greatness was not so much something that they were living in. It was not in a direction that they had. And so th this comes out so clearly. And here's your chance and my chance. Because I'll tell you what, pastors wrestle with this so much. We, we work to serve people. We work to use influence in order to help people, to share the gospel of, of Jesus. And so while we want the bigger influence, boy, how hard is that just to say, I want to be at the next level, the next level, the next level. What is it for you? What is it for you? What's the destination that your heart desires to be in someday? What is calling out to you? Can you identify that right now? Because once you hold that up to God and say, well, maybe it's a promotion up to vice president. Maybe it's a promotion up to a certain place. Maybe it's just getting the kids out of the house so we can have some freedom again. What is that place in the future where you say, I will be great once I get there? Can you identify it? Because when you ask God to get you to that place, like he's about to do with the sons of Zebedee here, he's going to ask you a question in return. And do you really know what you're asking? See, James and John, they said, Jesus, we're going to be your right-hand man, left-hand man. We're going to be with you all the way. We'll, we're going to do the work. Whatever is required, we'll get messy. We'll do whatever needs to happen. Just put us on your right and on your left. We want those positions of honor and glory. They had an, they had an idea, this earthly kingdom with, with this organizational chart. But that's not what Jesus came for. This is what he told them. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup that I'm going to drink? In today's terms, we would say, can you play the hand that I am being dealt? My cup, as, as they would soon discover, my cup is one of suffering. My cup is one of persecution. My cup is one of death. Can you really drink this? And again, oblivious to what this cup even entailed, they said, sure, sure. Slide it on over. We'll drink the cup. We can take it. We can handle it. And again, there's this assumption that they place into greatness that makes them completely overlook what greatness, according to their definition, would require of them. So here's how Jesus continues. They say, well, yeah, we can do it. But Jesus said to them, well, actually, you're kind of right. You will indeed drink from my cup. Um, and what he means there is, to a certain degree, because I suffer and die, you will also suffer. You will be persecuted. James, the son of Zebedee, James, he would be put to death by the sword about 14, 15 years after Jesus died and rose again. 
he drank from the cup that Jesus had to drink. And John, the apostle, um, he was actually the oldest living apostle. He was the one that wrote Revelation. He's the one that wrote 1 John and 2 John and 3 John, and he was a great writer. Um, but John was the oldest living apostle, and he was imprisoned for much of his life on an island, the Alcatraz of the day. He drank from the cup that Jesus had to drink from because he was a follower of Jesus. So Jesus says, indeed, you will drink from this cup. You won't take the whole thing, but you will drink from it. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. Those places belong to those for whom they've been prepared by my Father. Translation, I'm focused on greatness, on the greatness that will come from Jerusalem. Not the greatness you think, but my greatness. But honor and glory has nothing to do with what I do today. If you want to learn how greatness in the, in, the, in the path you're in right now is within your reach, fine, I will teach you that. But the reason we do this is not for a position, and it's not for honor, and it's not for glory. That's not the motivation at all. And, and this is an in invitation for us to do a little heart searching too. What is it that compels us to be in that place of greatness? What is it that compels you? Because what Jesus makes clear, number three on your sheet, true greatness is not motivated by its reward. There may be a reward. There may be a promotion. There may be an increase in pay. There may just be more influence. But true greatness is not motivated by its reward. And Jesus is about to fill in that hole with something better, something greater. True greatness is so much more than that. So Jesus is with his 12, and he quickly realizes it's not just these two brothers, the sons of Zebedee, that he has to work with when it comes to what greatness is and what motivates you to get there. Now as, as he's assessing this situation, this is what we see. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with those two brothers. Indignant means angry, furious. Maybe they were wishing, I should have had my mom come. Wish we would have been this forward-thinking to plant the idea in Jesus' mind that we could be at his right. We could be at his left. And they were indignant, angry, that they would even think to do this. <laughs> so now he doesn't have just two disciples to disciple. Now he's got 12 disciples to disciple. And Jerusalem is coming and time is running short. So he's like, okay, guys, come, come. Huddle, huddle time. We need to work this out. Here's what he does. So what Jesus called them together and he said, hey, guys, 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 you know this. So in other words, here's what you know already. This is what the world shows us. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Gentiles, in today's terms, we would say the secular world. The rulers of the people have authority over them. Whoever is a ruler can control what the people do. And that's kind of fun, isn't it? You can control people. That's what rulers are. You're, you're a ruler, you have a, you have a title. And a title gives you power and authority over others. Then he expands it. He says, their high, rule, their high officials exercise authority over them. So even the rulers have high officials over them. It's like this big pyramid, right? With one person at the top who gives all the orders and controls all the people. That's how this world works. And that's how you guys are viewing my kingdom. Knock it off. Not so with you. Have you ever 
seen one of those um, artists, they, they um, do this really quick painting on a blank canvas, and they're drawing it. And you almost feel awkward for them because they're drawing, just, they're, they're drawing nonsense. Like, it's just a bunch of marks, a bunch of squiggles, some weird stuff over here. It just doesn't make sense. And, and then they're finished with it, and they point to it, and the crowd is like, that is nothing. And then they turn it upside down, and you see, oh, it's actually a face. It's actually a person. And once they turn it over, then you see what it actually is. Now, that only works one time, and then every time after, you kind of, the, the, the spoiler is ruined after that. But there's that moment where when it's flipped over, you're like, oh, that's the way it's supposed to work. Jesus is about to do this with his disciples. He's going to paint for them a picture that does not make sense, and it would not make sense until one certain thing happened. This is the picture he painted. It's not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, now here's he, he's talking in their terms. If you're looking for that location where one day you'll have greatness, if you want to become great, you must, uh, they must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you, if you want to be at the top, they must be your slave. To which maybe they had some questions. Hold on, Jesus, you're talking about becoming great. How long do I have to be their slave for in order to accomplish greatness? He's saying, he would say, you, you don't get it. It's not about this time frame of being a slave or a servant. It's just who you are. You become their slave. You are their servant. To which they, their minds would have been blown. This doesn't make sense, though. I mean, if you flip that organizational pyramid upside down, the whole thing is just going to crumble. It doesn't work if, if the person who is in charge is actually the slave, and the slave is, how does that work even? Jesus must have been thinking, just, just wait. Just wait. The, the picture may seem upside down for now, but just, just wait. Whoever wants to be greatest must be the servant, the slave, of all. And then he gives this final little, little verse here, this final statement in Matthew chapter 20, where he lets them in on the moment when everything would suddenly click into place. You must be the slave of all. You must be the servant of all. And here's why. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, he did not come to be at the top of the pyramid to hold this position, to hold this authority so that everyone would acknowledge him and serve him, but rather he came to serve and to even give his life as a ransom for many. He was more than a servant. He was more than a slave. He gave his life as a ransom. And even the Gospels, as they go through Jesus' life, they acknowledge that after Jesus died and came back to life, there was this moment in the disciples as they were talking. They were like, oh, that's what he meant. So the Son of Man was not coming to rule over a nation. He was not coming to gain control over people, but he came to leverage everything he had to help and to serve the people. Okay, that makes sense. And as you push the issue a little bit further, well, what does it mean to, to you know, live in this moment? Not to see greatness as this destination down the road, but to be in the direction, be on a path of greatness. The Bible describes greatness in a very simple way. It's, greatness is not the measure of 
how high you are on the chart. And it's not the measure of how much authority or power you have over other people. That is not greatness. Greatness, rather, is about what you give. The best measure for greatness is not in what you have. The best measure for greatness is in what you give away. God so loved this world that he gave. He gave. God was already great before time began, before this universe began, but his greatness even became greater when he gave. The picture you get in Revelation is that even right now in heaven, you have that lamb on the throne with people around him acknowledging his greatness. Why? Because he gave his life. He shed his blood. Now and for all eternity, people and and even the Trinity is, is acknowledging the greatness of the Son of God for all that he gave. That's where his greatness is. And it wasn't a destination. It wasn't something off, but each and every day, it was Jesus looking at the people around him with compassion, with love, looking at how he could serve rather than to be served. And this brings us into the conclusion that I want you to take home for today. As amazing as it is to think of Jesus' greatness, here's one more thing, one last thought that's equally amazing. He invites you to join him in that cause. He invites you to join him in this greatness. And that all changes, that all starts. When you stop thinking of greatness as this destination somewhere, some location that you'll finally be at, he teaches you that greatness is within your reach because, destina- because greatness isn't about where you're going to end up. It's about the direction you are on. Greatness is not measured by what you have. It's measured by what you give. So what is your plan? What is your path of greatness? What was your path to greatness that was giving you hope and a dream and purpose? What was your path to greatness? And what would it look like to change that and exchange it for a path of greatness? Imagine what a marriage would look like when both people show up to say, I am not here to gain authority and power and influence over you. I am here to serve. I'm here to be your slave. And you have them competing. Which one is the better slave, the better servant? Imagine a marriage where both people try to show that love and give the other what they've been given from God. Imagine what things would be like in your workplace where instead of having this hierarchy of who you honor and who you don't honor and all that stuff, what if you just showed up and started to serve everyone equally? Imagine what God could do through an environment like that. Not because you're looking for a reward. Not because you're looking to feel good about yourself, although that will happen as a byproduct. Your single motivation for wanting to give of yourself is because your Savior gave everything for you. We're almost at the end of the series. We've got a couple more weeks here before we wrap things up. For this next week, I hope, I pray, that what we learned here today would be an opportunity for you to reevaluate the way you think about your greatness and your future. It is within your reach. It is because your Savior has invited you to be a part of that movement. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today we, we, as we look at greatness, we acknowledge that your greatness has no match. 
Because you love this world so much, you gave. And because your son loved this world so much, he gave. You've given us so much so that we can have an eternity with you. And I just pray that you would give us the wisdom to react to that truth in kind manner. That we would see our lives, our experiences, our positions, our families, our neighborhoods as opportunities for us to give, to make an impact through service and through servanthood. And I pray that you would give us the the motivation to do so, not because we find reward in it, but because the reward is in you and the reward we have is already waiting for us in heaven. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.